Okay, I have uh, some questions for today. We've submitted questions. Some I took over from yesterday. And, um, you know, I, I thinking of how to best use the occasion, the time here for everyone's benefit and welfare. I don't want to just create more and more words and thoughts um, if they're not useful. So I try to look at these topics and maybe assimilate or condense them into something that can be universally um, valid, applicable, or point to broad areas of practice that we can all relate to. So one topic that a person brings up is about what are called parami, this word parami, which means uh, perfections or thing, qualities that bring to perfection. And these are a list of various uh, virtues, you might say, such as honesty, uh, patience, wisdom, renunciation, kindness, uh, that arise from people after the Buddha thinking, what kind of qualities did the Buddha have? enabled him to have this incredible um, strong foundation for liberation you know what qualities did he have before he discovered dharma you know before he worked out his practice what kind of qualities did he have to give him the strength the resolve the resilience and the capacity to to fathom and, and generate these teachings so they considered it in different ways and to cut a long story short we have list that comes up in what became known as Theravada Buddhism of ten qualities and the idea being that these are all qualities that we know and uh, we can make use of so if we know these and make use of them in terms of our, our daily life and existence then we're in a way we are following Buddha we are similarly developing ourselves in line with the way the Buddha practiced. So these are generosity, morality, renunciation, restraint and simplification. Generosity, morality, renunciation, discernment, clarity, wisdom, patience, forbearance, Tolerance, energy, truthfulness, kindness, resolution, you need to make a resolve, and equanimity. So the person says, I, I find it a bit overwhelming to remember all of them and bringing them up in the right context. But they're important factors to develop aren't they? Do these develop innately as one follows the noble eightfold path? If you follow it correctly, yes. You follow it correctly. And these are, you know, how to use these teachings. Do you have everything written up on your fridge door? You know, five indriyas, seven factors of enlightenment, the four establishments of mindfulness. Uh, you know, how do you remember anything? You know, do you remember the way to drive to work? Do you remember 
how do you remember anything? You you study it, you make use of it, and it gradually gets established. Mm-hmm. And it's really you find situations that are occurring in your life where you're feeling very really restless and and then, oh, patient, patience, be patient, cultivate patience, yes, patience, right. You know, I want to get out, I've had enough of this escape, I can't stand this a moment longer. Patience. <laughs> you know, so it's a kind of response to, to situations that happen. Feeling negative, feeling angry, feeling... Disliking people, disliking yourself, then what's needed is the cultivation of spacious compassionate goodwill, metta. This is the way you practice. How to let go of thinking expectation by seeing them as stressful, stressful, agitated, and not providing you with clear results. Therefore, the mind grows weary of them. And begins to, is there something else that you can rely upon that will give you better results than conceptual thinking and um, expecting? And you say, yes, there is. Mindful, clear attention, directing your attention carefully to the source of the mind, the source of the thinking mind. Thinking mind rests upon various perceptions and impressions. Is having perceived a situation like this, I start thinking about it. Having perceived a person to be like this, I start thinking about her or him. Having perceived myself to be like this, I start thinking about how I could be or should be. So if we check that the perception is actually itself only a perception, not an ultimate reality, and we say, actually, what makes that perception so come alive? Because it stirs up desire, agitation, ill will, restlessness, sorrow, grief. Well, deal with the sorrow, grief, restlessness and agitation. Don't just keep fostering it because you can't deal with it through thinking. You can't govern your emotions through thinking. You can't govern your reflexes through thinking. It doesn't do that. So you've got to actually settle, contemplate these reflex reactions. expectations about trying to find security in the future very understandable but it doesn't make you secure it just takes you to the next place where you still feel insecure about the future we have to recognize the future is unknown and that one day we will die that's what you can know about it so what does that mean well come right back here and Prepare your mind in the best, beautiful way as possible so that that's the best thing you can do for the future is get yourself fit and ready. That's the best thing you can do. Everything you do comes from that. And if your thinking mind isn't proliferating about this and that and the other, the future gets a lot simpler. Just deal with this, deal with this, deal with this, deal with this. The one that's arising now. Person asks about practicing the sound of silence meditation because they find that the flow of breath they find it distracting.
the mind seems to confuse between tranquility from listening to the silence and the inhalation and exhalation of breathing. How to deepen the experience of the sound of silence so that it can help gain insightful wisdom besides the obviously tranquil state of peace that one experiences. Well, I guess obviously we're all different. Um, well, the Buddha used meditation on breathing. That was his practice. He didn't find it distracting. He found it exceptionally um, undistracting, but uh, gave rise to deep absorption and concentration and liberation. So that was the way it felt to him. It may be, I don't know how it's causing you distraction from what. Yeah. Um, um, no, but if you're equating it to the sound of silence, sound of silence is a, is a nimitta or a, a kind of a sign that arises if you just go to listening and you listen into the thoughts in the mind and you listen to the you know, the, the listening. So you listen to the listening consciousness. I am listening. So you turn your attention to the consciousness, the hearing consciousness. And you direct that towards, say, thinking or emotions and so forth. So it's a quiet. It's a one step, really. I think that's the attractive quality of it. Mindfulness of breathing is several steps. In the Buddhist dispensation, it's about uh, 16 steps or certainly a series of them. Um, but it does generate uh, great agility and um, access to the subtle energy of the body, whereby the physical body begins to uh, say disappear from, or not be apparent from one's consciousness, one's experience instead materiality, material energies. And through that, you're getting into a sense of deep happiness and, and ease if you do it right. So I think, obviously, this is a you know big topic really. But if you want to, you could try exploring mindfulness of breathing more deeply. It's not just focusing on air coming in and out of your body. It's focusing on the subtle energy, the prana, the life force itself, as it happens. So it tends to soothe, and uh, but at the same time, it doesn't leave the body. The body in a way, is seen as it really is, as a series of material phenomena arising and passing. And that's what gives you insight. So essentially, insight arises from noticing phenomena, from getting a, a perspective, a disengaged perspective, where the mind can be steady and witness phenomena that arise as arising and passing. Through that, acquire a sense of dispassion towards phenomena that arise. From that dispassion, and there is a sense of release from phenomena. Now, the issue is what are phenomena? Sound of silence will probably give you uh, access to emotional phenomena, which are, of course, extremely significant. Um, I know Mpua Sumedha used to develop this um, in some of the more <laughs> intense situations he was in. 
Uh, we find it very peaceful just to have these emotions arise and pass and not engage with them. Or thinking mind chattering away, not engaging with it. So it's a kind of way of stepping out of the mental phenomena. I don't think it really deals with physical phenomena. I'm not really developed it myself. But mindfulness of breathing does. And it also deals with uh, emotional phenomena because it deals with the energies from which emotions arise, which are embodied. So when we feel fear, for example, there's a bodily response, there's a mental, there's an emotional response, the two emotions arise from the body. So the body is calmed, body energy is calmed, then the emotion energy is calmed. Yeah. Uh, and when that's calm, we begin to also experience subtler qualities of mind arising. Now, however subtle or unsubtle it gets, the theme of insight is to witness whatever arises as a rising and passing and not self. That's how it's developed. So if it's using sound of silence, you can contemplate thoughts, emotions, or even subtler qualities like grasping at silence. You know, because when you get something tranquil and peaceful, there's a strong instinct to grab it and hold it and want more of it. So you can notice that. Oh, it's like a meta phenomenon. It's the way that phenomena are seen as, oh, this is great, you know, I really want this. And of course, tranquility is a mind state um, that doesn't last. <laughs> uh, you know, it can be there when you are, say, meditating. It can be there. But of course, when you're not meditating, that kind of tranquility, very subtle, refined energy, is disturbed but if you've used it to really penetrate into the roots of mental behavior the wisdom that arises and that is something you can sustain around phenomena mm -hmm. so Ajahn Chah many of the many of the great forest teachers were quite uh, emphatic upon the liberation through wisdom mm -hmm. And saying so they experience sometimes extreme pain or uh, hunger or even disease and just maintain awareness of it because uh, they had a strong resolution they had a strong faith they had perhaps a strong realization this too is changeable phenomena it's not myself so that sense of resisting phenomena or holding on to phenomena that's what insight works on to be able to allow phenomena to rise and pass mm. and sometimes they make it makes things difficult Ajahn Chah I remember when we were first here at Chithurst and um, I think uh, Lumpur Samadhi would sometimes send a report and say oh yeah things are going quite well community is quite peaceful things are going quite well uh, Lumpur Chah being who he is he'd say huh you don't get much wisdom if things are in harmony. You only get wisdom when things are difficult. <laughs> he was always teasing. Because <laughs> you start to hang on to it being peaceful. And then you get upset when it changes. <laughs> so don't hang on to tranquility. First, and ask about Qigong and its relevance. 
person finds the qigong uh, is something they're interested in and practice a lot and the relationship with energy it finds very helpful um, but the person is uncertain how the elements of buddhist cultivation connect with this approach is there a reference to dhammas as nature by teachers natural energies well the way it works in terms of buddhist language it works on what's called kaya sankara uh, which is translated in, in in a range of ways and generally it's not translated as body energy uh, but it's translated as body formation but um, body formation what does that mean so sankara the word kaya is body sankara means something that acts or an action kara is to make sankara something that makes something happen now something that makes something happen i call energy happening is an energetic process so these are just words but essentially the kaya sankara is the energy that moves around in the body and it's that which operates the breathing so as we breathe in and breathe out i don't breathe in and breathe out the body breathes in and breathes out how does it do that for some automatic way when i get to the end of the out breath something starts pulling it in again right something switches on and pulls it in again that experience is energetic isn't it vitalizing and energy flows through your system so it's energetic it's intelligent and it it generates it uses energy um, so you know to explain this in one simple word is not easy so i just use the word energy or energy formation or conditioned forces because the word sankara is almost untranslatable but that's what it is and so this is associated with breathing and as soon as it says breathing and out is the kaya sankara so if you try to <laughs> reword that because you've got some buddhist jargon there say well breathing in and out regulates the body energy if i get too excited i can calm myself down through slow breathing and so forth i feel sluggish i take a deep breath pull myself in you know get energized breathing regulates the body energy so in buddhist language this is breathing in and out is the kaya sankara is the regulator of body energy and in process of anapanasati this is seen as a step to to uh, realize or, or arrive at where you're calming and soothing the kaya sankara body energy and this moves into the experience of refreshment or rapture called piti and rapture or piti refreshment is both neurological we get a certain sense of brightening of vitality and it's also psychological we feel quite happy and with this qualities such as ill will uh, sense desire dullness and so forth they fade out because we're refreshed and bright we don't need sense desire because we feel happy because we're happy we're not in negative states so this leads to then to what's called ease or comfort release uh, that kind of ease 
And this then goes to the Chitta Sankara, which is the emotional or impulse energy of the heart. So through this practice, the impulse energy of the heart is stabilized and cooled. So because in dealing with Sankara, whatever you want to call it, cooperative energy, as with mindfulness of breathing, the problem is who does it? And most people start off doing mindfulness of breathing and sooner or later come to the to problematic issue of how do I stop controlling my breathing? How do I stop worrying about how good I can do it? How can I stop trying to get to the next step? I'm holding on to my breathing. I'm trying to make it work. I felt much happier when I wasn't doing this. <laughs> and they're correct. The problem is that if I am is doing it, like everything else that I am does, the I am experience is itself a sankara. It's an energetic formation that's built out of <laughs> desire, uh, controlling, holding, owning, possessing. You know, and this doesn't work on breathing. It makes it much more difficult. So if I am doesn't control it, what does control breathing in and out? Well, we say the body does. It's the body's process. Let the body do it. But with your mindfulness, stay there witnessing that experience and you'll gradually, it will settle. Now to experience your body without a sense of I am uh, is quite a, many people, it's a bit of a shift. So we do some Qigong. And clearly you do move your body around, but a lot of the time standing still, you're not doing anything, just allowing body energy to move and change and standing stable, quiet, so you've got a simple foundation and you get to experience all oh, stuff, oh, things are happening by themselves. Yeah, there's a sense of opening in the chest happening by itself without me doing it. And your focus is wide. And I think this is something that people almost by default, unless they're continually instructed, don't get. We imagine to focus is to focus up close like you do with your eyes. You know, sharp point, 5% of the visual field, you focus on a particular object. That's called focusing. And it's true, that's how you focus your eyes. But you don't focus your eyes on your breathing. People talk about watching the breath, but nobody watches the breath. You can't see it. So the, the visual focus is kind of irrelevant. What does focus on the breathing is the body. And the bodily focus is much wider, broader. We can sense the whole body. If you're standing in a shower, you feel the whole body feeling wet, or you feel an air that's dry. If you walk out on a cold day, the whole body feels cold. It's very easy to focus on it. In fact, there's almost no effort required. That's why we do it. You've just got to be aware of your entire body and stop contracting. Uh, and within that, that's your focus and you listen in. What, what is it that changes and moves? Where's the vitality moving? It's breathing in and what's there. So it's much more receptive. This is where it's similar to the focus you use for sound of silence. It's a wide listening focus. It's listening with your body. So these are some things to reflect upon about the um, how this lines up.
remember words we're dealing often we're dealing with translations which have their benefits and limitations we don't see a very easy translation for sankara that really makes sense to you in your, in your daily life experience that's why i use something like energy which is an accessible translation kaya sankara is a little bit more than that but it gives you a good thing to 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 uh, get a handle on uh, and energy obviously is not a, a narrow point it's a moving changing fluctuating flow so to do that you have to have a, a broad steady receptive focus i find that's the most suitable for mindfulness of breathing person experiences tension in their tongue and jaw uh, i don't know where the resting place is for the tongue i suggest resting it on the floor of your mouth how to practice to stay upright and joyful living and working alone day after day months on end as is common these days a sense of acute loneliness sets in well that sounds like it's a recipe for loneliness working alone day after day months on end how would you not feel alone because that's what you're doing working alone day after day but if you widen your attention beyond day after day working alone you come to well there's such a quality as loving kindness that people all over the world experience and with that i remember my friends and relatives yeah. and as i cultivate that quality perhaps it encourages me to cultivate that towards myself we can also i think it's very useful to do chanting chanting connects us at a very almost deep ritual way to the field or the communion or the assembly of the disciples of the tradition you're chanting the words of the buddha the disciples when you're chanting almost certainly somebody else in the world will be chanting so you can open widen your attention to include you know not just what's appearing in front of your sense consciousness which is alone as it always is that's the nature of it and you go into heart consciousness the dimension of the heart which is never alone it's never alone it's always sensing experiences now when we sense the quality of aloneness what does that feel like dead uh, cold uh, insensitive lack of warmth lack of humor mm. oh you get it down to one one word oh sad that's it tired that's it tired sad 
That's it. Got it. What does that need? It needs to be known, recognized, and responded to. Compassion, goodwill is almost always the key to freeing up these negative emotional effects. Chanting can help that because it tunes you into the heart, the resonant quality. You can't think your way out of loneliness, you think your way into it, you can't think your way out of it, but you can chant your way out of it. You know, I mean, people who've been in prison for years, just by praying, chanting, recollecting every day while they're in prison, they have a spiritual practice. It's what keeps them alive and well. Practice compassion, practice kindness towards this being, towards people in the past, towards people in the future. It helps to break down the wall of loneliness. Person asks about letting go of attachments. Some attachments are difficult to give up. For example, not everyone I live with agrees with my practice. I cannot change another mind, but I do wish to bridge the gap. In this case, simply letting go feels more like abandonment or like shirking mothering responsibility. I feel conflicted by this. Letting go of attachments. So person tries to offer as an attachment. Other people don't agree with their practice. They want to bridge the gap between themselves and others. They want to bridge the gap between themselves and others. And they sense letting go seems like abandonment. Abandonment of other people, I suppose. Or like shirking mothering responsibility. Shirking mothering responsibility. Well, there's some interesting terms in there, but what are you responsible for? What does that mean? Does it mean you have to make people be a certain way? That's going to bring you suffering. Uh, Want people to understand you? It's not necessarily going to happen either. Uh, Trying to make things more harmonious. That requires mutual effort, doesn't it? It's only harmonious if we all want it to be harmonious. You can't make harmony on your own. So you can't really accept responsibility for other people's state of mind. And what you need to let go of, or you could say, acknowledge the fallacy of assuming 
that you are responsible for other people's state of mind, that you are responsible for people understanding you, that you can make people be the way that will feel most comfortable. This is a fallacy. So letting go occurs when we acknowledge that we can't hold on. Well, it's not, so you don't let go so much as recognize that you can't hold on. You can't make things happen. So something, oh. now why don't we let go? Because it's, we feel painful. So people don't understand me, that's painful. So if you get it right down to the one word, pain, discomfort, embarrassment, sore, well, that has to be accepted. As a feeling, heart feeling, and this is where compassion arises. Acceptance of the emotionally uncomfortable, particularly in terms of other people. And therefore, then you have somewhere where you're clear, you're no longer agitated. And then, okay, it's not where I like it to be, but this is nothing new. A lot of things aren't the way I like them to be. Isn't that so? You get depressed about it, feel blame yourself for it, feel annoyed by it, or just stop reacting to that. If you know, if there's something we can do, fine. But if there isn't, then there's got to be that sense of painful feeling. Okay, that's how it is now. Many questions on pain. Person pain in the legs, pain in the back, pain in the torso. <laughs> yeah. Pain. Right. It's very humbling, isn't it? How how controlled we are by pain, how being so Pain challenges us constantly. Trying to find a place where you you can't feel it or you can feel at peace with it. Um, This is again a major practice. Um, You might say, um, you know, the, the whole body. So if you focus on only one part of your body is painful. Try to give more attention to the parts that aren't painful. So that way you're not completely overwhelmed and flooded with the painful quality. And beginning to say, work on what can be changed, which is one's emotional, mental and psychological agitation, distress, despair, irritation around physical pain that's something that's possible possible to do and that can lessen the intensity it's there but doesn't get in 
Mm. Of course, you know, you can try changing position, posture. You must have done that already. And of course, some teachers um, just use willpower. Mm. Just sit, you know, be with it. And after about six hours or so, just, you know, the mind no longer registers it. Well, that's a pretty tough path. A woman I know who had uh, extreme arthritic condition, and uh, she would say the body's on fire for about three days. And after about three days, the body stops stops doing it. Something in the nervous system starts to, you know, stop uh, having that response. Well, that's quite a tough, tough program to undertake. So clearly, you know, if pain is caused by something injurious that you can do something about, like pain in your knees, and you can change your position so you're not damaging them, then you're generally advised to practice with it. If it's pain on something you can't do anything about, then you have to practice patience. And that's a simple word to say for a lot that needs to be done. The mind has to just complete opening, giving up, relaxing, letting go of negative mental states. One person acknowledges that the certain pain they had seemed to be coming from a trauma uh, which whether on a seven-day silent retreat they found this pain and they were exploring it and the pain directed them to a, a memory of being 11 years old and having his friend collapsing and dying in front of him at school. So the person, the little boy, was overwhelmed with, with grief. So having seen this, seemed to be able to, the pain disappeared. And that's wonderful. But it came back again and got, got fed up with it. So it's essential to, you know, work with the mental aspects of it. It's possible. You know, certainly even in some retreats we're not allowed to move and just be with the pain and you know, if you have good resolve, and it's possible to arrive at a place where the pain is just sensation and you don't get that same jabbing. It's just sensations passing through. But it takes quite a lot of resolution and support to do that. Another person experiences something horrific and frightening which they cannot talk about because of fear. This is blocking me from practice and bringing up numbness, fear and hopelessness. How do I get to a state peaceful enough to practice? Well, so if the word is fear, if the key word is fear, and it's about a, a mental state. Feel the fear in the body. 
because it does occur in the body. You can't be frightened in your mind and have a relaxed body. You feel something. So you feel the effects of fear in the body. And it gives you a way of being a little more objective about the experience. And this is not self. This is just a reaction. This is this itself is not self. It's not me. You know, this is what fear does. And in the original topic, which you feel horrifying, horrifying, that also, though it seems to be about you, it's not. It's, uh, you know, it creates pictures of you, memories of you, maybe ideas about you. Uh, I don't know what it is, but, um, okay, so can you find that resilience in the body? This, you know, there's nobody there. It's just fear and agitation and memory or anticipation running around. Can we find that place where we can contemplate or be with experiences without identifying? Once you identify, you've lost it. Using the body helps you to disidentify with the mind because you you see it much more objectively. Person asks about out of body experiences. Out of body experience being like astral or out of the body. Used to happen while meditating, I was told to stop them as a simple distraction or form of entertainment. So I'm in the habit of stopping them. But recently I was told they're good. <laughs> A sign of solid concentration that should be developed or encouraged. A useful skill for providing care and compassion. So so one person told you to stop, another person told you to, to, to start. <laughs> I don't think I can make them happen anyway, but maybe it will just happen again if a compassionate need arises. Uh, well, I am I am not I'm not in favour of going out of the body. Uh, you know, you lose part of the ability to steer and to ground yourself. When emotions or thoughts seem overwhelming, it's very useful to have a, a sense of a body to oh, is that if, I, if you dissociate, you can be quite dangerous. Energies can arise that cause extreme loss of balance, disorientation. Uh, traumatic experiences can arise. And then you've got nothing to hold on to. Uh, and just because you're out of the body doesn't mean you're out of the mind. And the mind is the problem, not the body. So I don't know really, did they really recommend you dissociate or get some perspective on the body? I can't, I can't really relate to being encouraged to go out to dissociate as a Buddhist practice. The Buddha said, you know, the deathless Nibbana 
is dependent upon mindfulness of the body. If you don't have mindfulness of the body, you don't realize the deathless. Mindfulness kaya gata sati, mindfulness gone into the body is the path to the deathless. I don't see going out of your body. And the Buddha so strongly recommends when he talks about touching the deathless in your body, when he talks about attaining the four jhanas in your body, you know, suffusing your entire body with happiness and joy, first jhana, covering your entire body with a, with a pure bright mind, fourth jhana, they're all embodied. So I don't, I can't accept that going out of your body is a good idea. Uh, I think it's dangerous, but certainly some dispassion towards the sensorial aspect of the body, physical and sensory aspect of it, but don't lose touch with the, the simple grounding presence of its energy, of its sensitivity, because it's an enormous, almost fundamental support in dealing with the mind. So someone's been experiencing an unfolding of somatic knots in the nervous system. So this refers to experiences of tension or numbness within the body, which is not due to physical conditions. It's not because you've got a bad back or your shoulders twisted. It's you feel internally numb or blocked or imbalanced. That's called a somatic knot. So they're experiencing some of these knots that begin to unfold in meditation. How is this process related to releasing the citta from Sankara? Well, knots are caused through Sankara. So when uh, a mental formation or a mental energy such as fear or very obvious example, that's a mental energy, isn't it? It's not just a thought, it's a mental. It seizes the mind and it, it has an effect on the body. Right? You feel that charging up in the body. So Chitta Sankara, which is the mental or psychological or emotional form or energy, a formative con condition, arises. It gives rise to a bodily condition because um, it runs through the same nervous system, essentially. Now, when the immediate impact of that goes away, then doesn't necessarily always mean that the bodily impression goes away. The body still remains slightly. Some of that is, some of that is stuck there. Often because when we come out of fear, we don't come out of fear in a kind of quiet, mellow, relaxed way. We sort of snap out of it. So it has to be fully released. And so this is what we do in meditation as we create or enter or generate a safe space around us, safe, nothing's bothering me, no pressure, don't have to jump up and do something, feel comfortable and safe space within. I'm putting aside regret. Uh, self-criticism, aversion towards myself, so, and then this in a way 
allows the system to open up. And breathing through that, as you're letting breath, breath energy, the vitality of your breathing move through the bodily experience, it can begin to gently melt some of these tensions. Of course, we have to have a sympathetic mind state to go along with it. Just as the negative bodily condition arose because of a negative, afflictive mental condition, you have to have a, a positive mental condition to accompany a positive mental, physical condition or, some, or any physical energy, body energy. Right? So it's more like you're breathing goodwill, compassion, spaciousness, ease, acceptance through your body. That's how the, that's how it works. Having increased time alone seems to result in more opportunities for memories involving regret or resentment to, to arise. I can accept some of these intellectually, still have an emotional charge that's harder to resolve. How to change the experience when it arises? You don't change the experience, you change the way you relate to it. So resentment is like this. Yeah. Resentment's like you don't like resentment, but it happens. It feels like this. Maintain steady, unbroken awareness and sympathy for that. It's just the thing that's happening. It's not very nice, it's not very noble, you can't be proud of it, but it happens. What's needed here? What's needed here? Space, listening, non-resistance, and let it move. Now, your answer to what's needed may be different, but essentially, you can't really get rid of emotions. You have to create a space for them to free themselves up, pass through. The asava. Asavas are one of the most fundamental corrupting influences. These are almost reflexes, compulsive reflexes that are beneath our conscious control. So like the reflex of uh, uh, creating an identity, which is just, it just sort of happens. It rushes in, we identify with something, create an identity. So there's an energy that does that. This is asava, it's a flowing quality that moves in. So it can be either energy flows out from the heart or something comes in and causes the heart to break open and start leaking into all kinds of proliferating thoughts and imaginations. So either of those will do. It's to do with something that the Buddha's just using a word to try to encapsulate the experience of something flooding. So flooding with the asava of sensuality, the mind is just suddenly lit up and flooded with sense desire. What's happened? Something's got into the mind and it's suddenly burst open all this energy is rushing out into desire and craving. What's the difference between peace, serene and tranquility? What's the difference between piti, rapture, and sukha, happiness? Well, again, this is just words, but tranquility really is about samatha, calming, soothing, pasadi, 
it's basically the quality of softening and soothing mental states, bodily states, energies, and that gives rise to refreshment, piti, something that feels bright and zestful because the energies of the body and mind have been soothed. That's the tranquility aspect. And rapture is a rather fresh state and uh, um, it's rather, almost like enthusiasm is like that, you know, it's rather like that. And sukha is more like a restful ease, contented. Oh, so if we're doing, for example, you're playing the piano, and when you're playing the piano, you feel, oh, this is great, really enjoying, yeah, 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 creative. You get to the end of the piece and you think, oh, that was nice, I enjoyed that. So one is piti, the other is sukha. Serenity is probably more to do with equanimity, which is a little more dispassionate towards these emotional conditions. And peace, <laughs> peace means not being moved one way or another and having a serene abiding. So the ultimate peace is Nibbana. It's not about tranquility. It's about wise dispassion, uh, you know, everything. Everything ripens into that. All these good qualities, they mature into, into a peace, which is much more rounded out than tranquility. It's about discernment, wisdom, understanding, letting go. And certainly these, these happy uh, experiences do help to make the mind capable of doing that. It does help to get some leverage on um, negative mental afflictions. So we can get happy and then all this happiness is like this. Uh -huh. Happiness is like this. Uh -huh. So, yeah, it's a condition comes and goes. What is not holding on? Peace is not holding on. So thank you for your questions and hope one or two of these things have been useful for the rest of you to consider and use to deepen your practice.